0: This is CSAP's Science and Policy Podcast, where we're bringing you the latest evidence and expertise to improve public policymaking. This week, we're proud to present the third episode in our series on science, policy, and pandemics, which is brought to you in partnership with Cambridge Infectious Diseases and the Cambridge Immunology Network. In this episode, our host, Dr. Rob Doubleday, is joined by Dr. Caroline Trotter and Dr. Stephen Baker.
1: Welcome, everybody. I'm Rob Doubleday from the Centre for Science and Policy, and this week, I'm delighted to introduce Professor Stephen Baker and Dr. Caroline Trotter. Professor Baker is Professor of Molecular Biology at the University of Cambridge, and over the past few weeks, he has been leading one of the first academic labs to convert to becoming a diagnostic laboratory, which is now carrying out validated rapid testing for Adam Brooks Hospital. Dr. Trotter is an epidemiologist at Cambridge whose work on infectious diseases and Infectious Disease Dynamics looks at the epidemiology of vaccine-preventable infections. Caroline is also Academic Director of the Cambridge Africa Programme. Thank you both very much for joining us. So with that, I would like to turn to Stephen. But Could you just take a moment um, to talk about the science behind testing for presence of the virus, and therefore why it is apparently difficult to do this? So the two
2: main methods that are used and are discussed are conventional diagnostic approaches. One uh, actually detects the presence of the virus through detecting evidence of its nucleic acid in a sample, which is the PCR-based method, Uh, and the other one then, which is being discussed and may be coming widely available, depending on what happens in the next few weeks, is the antibody method, which then detects evidence that you have generated an early immunological response to the virus, which then provides suspicion that, that you're then infected with the virus.
1: We're concerned today, particularly by with understanding the PCR test um, yeah. to test for the presence of the virus. Um, why is it that it seems that, that we're still, as a country, stuck about? sort of 10,000 plus or minus tests a day. Why is it that it's not possible to do many more than that?
2: So there's various complexities around doing this. First of all, we're working with a highly transmissible and clearly quite a dangerous virus Um, So the way we handle those samples is important. So the issue then, if you take a sample from a particular swab type and put it into a media, that may not necessarily kill the virus, so that virus then is still contagious and then has to be handled under certain containment facilities to ensure that you don't affect anyone else or the people working with the sample. And then the second issue then is identifying the nucleic acid in the sample. So this is an RNA virus. Procedure is to extract the nucleic acid from it, which is in the form of RNA, and then we have to amplify it to detect it in the form of cDNA. So we copy it, turn it into double-stranded cDNA, and then we try and PCR detect it in a sample. So the issues around there there is cleanliness. So this is an incredibly finickety approach because having one copy of viral RNA in some of your media or some of your solutions on somebody's hands during the extraction process on the end of a pet tip can then contaminate the run and therefore you have a lot of false positive results. So the issues are not only then the logistics of processing the sample, but also then making sure that you don't have cross-contamination anywhere and then start reporting back a load of false positive results.
1: So it really is about logistics and process. It's not that there's some sort of cutting-edge science that is particularly complicated in, in, in running these tests.
2: Um, no, thankfully, because we're doing it, so it's not that cutting-edge or complicated, so we can manage it. The, the issue then more is just having people that are well-versed in how we then process samples. So we have to divide our laboratory up into three areas. We have a dirty area whereby we do the extractions to make sure that the extractions stay. They're not, they should be decontaminated in already. So there's no infection risk of them because of the way we handle them. But they're done in a dirty area because we extract them from biological materials to then generate the nucleic acid. Once we've generated the nucleic acid, we have a separate room, which is our clean area, which is where that we keep the reagents. And then only before we're due to detect the presence of the virus, do we then mix them together and then they go into another room where we actually amplify it and then we detect the amplicon. So we keep those three rooms separate. And we also keep those individuals doing those, those things separate too. So there's no risk of cross-contamination of anything.
1: Could you just then talk, talk us through the last two and a half weeks of your professional life? How is it that you managed to go from uh, pretty much a standing start as an academic laboratory adjacent to a hospital, but now to effectively functioning as, as a testing diagnostic lab for a a hospital?
2: Yeah, well, unfortunately, I've done it before. I I wouldn't wouldn't choose to be in this position, but we we took up the challenge. So the process was then to turn our uh, equipment here and our laboratory flow into a mechanism where we could start performing diagnostic testing. So that meant then having access to an assay. So we spoke to the public health laboratory here in Adam Brooks Hospital. They provided us with a number of reagents to get going, which includes the the primers and the probe for the method that they'd validated and then used. Their machine is different to ours. sample processing is different to ours. We have access to a high-level containment laboratory and we will be using that later on for additional samples that we're working with patients on the ICU for. But what we had to do then to make sure we could improve the turnaround time was then work on a method that we could deactivate the virus straight away. We worked with another individual, a professor of virology in Goodfellow, who provided us access to some materials and also a method whereby we could take swabs, put the swabs into a buffer which deactivated the virus as soon as the buffer hits the virus. We then had to prove that was the case and that deactivated the virus so we could work with that. We then had to validate our equipment to get the PCR running off known positive samples that were provided to us. Once we had everything in process, including the reagents that we needed to make sure we could scale up and actually deliver those initial validations, we then had to get approval from the hospital to go back to known COVID positive individuals, take those swabs, process them our way so we could extract them in our laboratory and run them using our PCR system. And in sure that we got complementary results to what had been generated before. And that whole process took two weeks. Then over the weekend, we had to get the the procedures in place with the hospital to make sure that then we could make the reagents, get the tubes to them, and then come up with a system for sampling hospital workers. And as of a Monday afternoon, we got our first tranche of samples from people working at the hospital through the Occupational
1: Health Department. Just give people a sense of of what scale you started at. How big is your lab roughly, and and how many people are working in there?
2: Um, So our laboratory is quite big. But we're restricted on space for the way we then handle the sample flow. So we have a, a clean room, which contains three class two cabinets, of which we can have three people working in there maximum at any one, one point. So that would be our dirty extraction room. So the, 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 the pinch point, if you like, is doing the manual extraction. So we could do it and automate it and get it onto machine. But the issues with the machine are then we have to set it up. We have to validate the extraction process on machine. We have to get reagents for those machines which are in demand at the moment. So we've done it essentially by developing a method that we are pretty much good uh, for reagents that we have for the next couple of months to make sure we don't have to rely on large companies to provide us with kits. With those individuals, we can probably process uh, in that one laboratory 96 samples in any one time. Theoretically, we could do it twice a day, but that puts a lot of demand on people for being in a cooped up room in one space. So what we've done is actually commandeer a similar laboratory downstairs and replicate the same setup. So as it stands, even though we haven't done it yet, our capacity with having two of those extraction laboratories would be two times ninety-six. extractions per day. If we had more of those, we could do more. And our machine, we can run 96 in one go at the moment, but theoretically, we can do it in 384. At any one point, theoretically, if we had enough laboratory space here, uh, we could actually run 384 samples in one go. And that whole process takes about four hours from extraction all the way through to results.
1: Explain how, how that has worked in, in relation to hospitals. So you're, you're yep. an academic proximate to the hospital, but but obviously not part of the, the kind of clinical side of things. How have you gone about making sure what you're doing is actually kind of helping? The-
2: well, that was the primary concern about about there's lots of people running around trying to find useful things to do. So what we did is ignore that and then copy an already working assay with the view that actually, if we could then provide some capacity, that may be useful. And the vision was that we would do it on the basis of the fact that if it was useful, then we could could adapt it and, and provide it. If it wasn't useful or we couldn't get it working, then we would abandon it. And like everybody else, we then work from home. So we went through the process with them. We agreed on what we were going to do. We, we, we They left us to it, and then they provided support when we had points where we had to validate particular runs to make sure that actually we were getting complementary results to them. And then at the point that we knew everything was working and the the laboratory that we worked with over in the hospital, the actual diagnostics laboratory, were happy with our procedures and the results that we generated. Then we went to the hospital and said, we can now do this. Uh, how would you like us to manage the sample flow for screening people in the hospital
1: what from your interaction with the hospital do you think will be the value that this capacity you're offering will will open up
2: not only the fact is a big you know thing for us to do try and contribute something useful rather than getting on with our day-to-day kind of research jobs but also it means that it's been a fantastic morale boost for people working in the hospital and it may actually be at the point at some point we could expend it to people that are at home now working in the hospital that may have family members uh, that with symptoms and we could expand it to screening those people to then get the people that are at home back into work quicker knowing that they're they're not shedding the virus so there's, there's lots of lots of potential potential spin-outs which have been positive.
1: And so to be clear this is testing healthcare workers? Yeah
2: so that is. So we're not a registered diagnostic laboratory. We're doing it under the auspices of the um, laboratory here and we're reporting back the information onto the hospital database but it comes with a disclaimer that this is being done on the, in a research laboratory using the same methods and requires some approval from the people working over there. What we haven't done deliberately is then say this is a diagnostic test for patients because we're not currently certified to do so. So we're offering it as a test for staff uh, with the disclaimer that this is not done as part of diagnostic care for patients and it's being done independently in academic research laboratory.
1: Do you know of other labs associated with hospitals that are doing what you're doing? Are there other parallel initiatives going on around the country? And to the extent which there are or there aren't, do you think there should be more? If the Answer is yes, you do think that what you're doing should could be duplicated or emulated. What would be the most helpful way of, of supporting others to follow the path that you've, you've taken or to support them going down their equivalent route?
2: So, yeah, there are, I mean, there are. I know other organizations. So, Paul Nurse is on the radio saying that the you know, the cricketer in the process are doing something similar. I don't know how far along they are. I know other people I've spoken to are thinking about it, but I'm not sure who out there is actually offering it as a services yet, but I'm sure it's not, I mean, it's not a unique idea. The, the other question was around how can we then adapt it? Should, should we be doing more of it? I think they're having this local capacity to do things quicker. So we're on site. It's a matter of somebody walking over with a box that's two minutes away from the hospital and we can turn around the results relatively quickly. So there is less problem there for setting up massive sample handling system, getting samples to us and also reporting back information. And being small but flight of foot is probably quite good in these kind of circumstances and actually it'll probably be very useful for most hospitals to have similar capacity to do something similar and even to expand into diagnostics patients if that was required. And how do people go about doing it? Uh, what I would recommend is that people think about it and then communicate appropriately with the people in their hospitals that are running the tests and see how best they can work alongside them so they don't hinder their progress and what they're trying to do in the hospitals, but they try and then create more capacity. And I'm in the process of actually writing up a, an outline or a blueprint, if you like, of what we've done.
1: What would you then recommend as that, that could be done centrally or from somewhere else to sort of facilitate others to, 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 to be doing what you've done?
2: I think that having an outline of the, the tests and how to validate those tests on a set of machines firstly is the priority. I think that having a, a schematic approach for how you ensure cleanliness is, is vital. Having then the methods that we've got, um, which are all published, we've just put them together. So actually the we, we haven't done anything particularly clever apart from take existing information and put it together in one process um, and then provide people with those procedures for the swabbing technique for the, the buffers that we're using and also then for the PCR amplification uh, and then people are good to go. I think the, the, the key concern is, so there's, there's, there's two principal concerns. One is making sure that, that people are doing these things under as best controlled environment as possible. What we don't want is people reporting back a load of false positive or false negative results because that makes the problem worse. Um, so that's making sure that the procedures in the laboratory are, are being uh, adhered to. And also then that actually there is some interaction with the healthcare providing service, the local NH trust or whoever that may be, of validating that information that's coming back from the machine so they can oversee that their things are being done appropriately, that the controls are being run appropriately, and the methods are being adhered to, because they're being run out of their responsibility, uh, but to some extent under their jurisdiction. So there needs to be some degree of a partnership and agreement with some host laboratory somewhere. But that's feasible. It would be just a matter of then having somebody interacting with them and then trying to duplicate those methods in another place. Uh, many hospitals have you know, academic laboratories near, nearby that could do something similar.
1: How can we learn from what you've done and scale this up? Can you tell us more about the scale you're currently operating at? You're
2: so going- so, so, we've been, so, we've been quite cautious with the way we've approached this. Um, the hospital are handling the sampling side and I think they, we, we've kind of rolled it out as a kind of almost like an academic project as such in collaboration with the hospital. Um, so the data is being re- re- recorded, but also reported back to the individuals and the hospital are taking care of the swabbing and who gets swabbed and when. And the concept is we're going to swab, longitudinally swab, which means swab them more than once by week or by fortnight, people on high-risk wards and then other people that have symptoms otherwise and then work out what happens over the next few weeks for what the demand looks like. Um, What we're hoping is that we've got enough capacity here to reach that demand, even if we just run it as a cottage industry with our laboratory, we've got enough to do 500 tests a week, which should be enough to screen a fair proportion of the high-risk staff within the hospital, which is excellent. If we then do that and do it every fortnight, then suddenly that becomes... You know a lot more yeah so our experience of doing this and I know there's lots of discussions about setting up central facilities to do this this has been hard work and actually uh, I think that we're I, I'm, I'm no better at doing this than anybody else I'm sure there's lots of other people that can probably do it better than, uh, than we can but I think that this has been a lot of effort to go from nothing essentially we've done this in two weeks Um, And it's been tough for all the reasons that I mentioned about getting access to samples, about getting the sample flow, the ethical approval, the improvements to making sure we can validate it. Um, And now they're setting up central uh, facilities everywhere to do this. There's going to be issues with getting those samples to those places, doing extractions safely, reporting back the information en masse, and there's all the logistical issues that we know about doing things at big scale which are going to cause problems. I think that setting those that test, that those limits for what they've, they've said of however many they're going to do in a fortnight or 25 minutes or whatever it is, I think are ambitious at best. And I think that what we've got to do is clearly... We were behind everybody else, but now we're catching up. I think what we've got to do is try and expand what we're doing and everybody that is in a position to try and contribute something does. And if we can get close to that, then great. If not, we just do as much as we possibly
1: can. So what is the ability to scale this up across the country and include not only hospital but other healthcare workers?
2: The the, the way around that would be for Public Health England or another central organisation to provide a blueprint of information to say this is the methods that we're working, these are the machines we're running, this is how to do it, and to make that information public, and then to provide a set of central location with a set of standardised reagents, then people that can try and adapt this and get this working. That would be the first step. How it then gets scaled up to make sure sample flow is a different issue. But the first stage is working out who's got what machines anywhere that can be used or repurposed for this, and then having a standard set of methods and also reagents to get that working.
1: What do we need to be thinking about in terms of regulatory processes for testing?
2: So I think that the the way around this is to have a certified laboratory to oversee those results to make sure they're managing smaller laboratories. So have this kind of satellite thing. So you have a central facility that's overseeing procedures and data coming out. And that to some some way then avoids people then reporting incorrect information. The, the thing that we haven't mentioned actually around that is then these antibody tests and with respect to those then there's, there's going to be lots of these coming and actually the problem is with those is we don't really know what they mean yet. Uh, it's too early and none have been particularly well validated and there will be regulatory issues about those about what's being offered and what's being told by those and actually those potentially could prob- possibly if they're not properly regulated or properly validated do more harm than good.
1: So Caroline as an epidemiologist you know, assuming that the UK gets to 100,000 tests by the end of this month, what sort of opportunities does that open up for understanding the d- dynamics of this disease and controlling it?
3: Clearly, as, as Stephen's has emphasised, the work in his labs really important, but for, he's looking at uh, hospital workers, the workers in, in and um, which will be really valuable for getting people back to work and keeping NHS running at, at uh, full strength. The broader question about strategy, and obviously the government's aim is to get to 100,000 tests per day, um, sort of opens up new opportunities for disease control. Currently, we're all in, we're all in lockdown, li- movement's very limited. Other countries that have had a much broader base for testing actually have had uh, more success in controlling the virus. So examples like uh, South Korea and Germany, where they have a much broader base of testing. Um, and this then allows them to identify people who are positive with the virus, and they can follow up their contacts that's much more specific you're trying to get a much better handle on who is infected and who's at risk by following these contacts rather than placing everyone um, everyone in lockdown and this has really been the strategy that the world health organization have advocated from the start of tedros sort of advocating test 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 for many months and i think in many places it just hasn't been possible to do that if there is a much broader much bigger capacity for testing then it does open up new opportunities for for control and potentially uh one way of, of moving out of this of this lockdown. So
1: situation we're currently in. Do you have a sense in in terms of getting to that data that we'll need obviously there's been quite a lot of comment or criticism about the idea that you know to try and understand why the UK seems to be you know performing relatively less well than some leading countries in terms of numbers of tests and what what do you feel be the from an epidemiologist point of view the most important way forward in terms of making sure that the tests are ramped up and delivering useful data that are going to help inform the epidemiologists? In the modeling
3: I mean the modeling there's been intense efforts. Uh, many people are involved in sort of efforts to to generate these models and, and uh, direct them towards important policy questions. And the models are really only ever going to be as good as the data that goes into them. The key information currently from, from the UK, as you know, Julia Gog in your first podcast pointed out, it's, it's focused on hospitalizations and death. You think of the infections as a pyramid, what the UK are capturing quite well, is this very top of the pyramid where you've got the severe cases. And the deaths. What we have much less of an idea about is what's going on in the bottom half of the pyramid, where you've got milder infections and asymptomatic infections. With a, with a broader testing strategy, you've got a much better idea of what's at the base of this pyramid. So you've got better data, and therefore you can have better, better models. Um, and I know there are a lot. There are lots of efforts to improve modelling capacity to look at exit potential exit strategies from this lockdown.
1: So the kind of tests that Stephen's doing on on, on that's, that's focusing on workers in hospitals and, and focusing initially on on getting people to you know imp- improving the kind of the rate of of the, the workforce. Is that going to generate data that can help in terms of understanding the dynamics of the disease or is this really just a different kind of endeavour?
3: I think broadly it's a, it's a different kind of endeavour. I mean it's it's key to for key, you know, getting people back to work um, but but the people in the hospital probably have a known exposure so if they're the ones coming into contact with COVID-19 patients we know they're exposed so it's not giving us much information about what's going on in the general population because they're quite a specific population But but clearly this is uh, what Stephen's doing in his laboratory is is key for um,
1: keeping the hospitals running. What does the German testing experience tell us about asymptomatic cases?
3: Clearly. There are asymptomatics going on um, and this is going to be, it's a crucial factor in the control of any infectious disease. The higher the proportion of asymptomatic, the more difficult the infection is to control. I can't give you a clear answer on what this proportion of asymptomatic are. I think there's more evidence coming in all the time, but this is sort of the one of the million dollar questions and I think certainly South Korea have had a a very broad-based testing and so people can sort of drive up uh, and be tested even um, I think to some extent if they're not if they're not symptomatic it's just if they've had an exposure Um, so you're right it's really important to know this I'm not sure we have a full handle on this quantity yet.
1: Some epidemiological studies have estimated that the actual number of people infected with the virus is much higher what do you think of these higher estimates?
3: There was a paper came out from the Oxford Modeling Group's saying essentially that the data that we have from the UK is consistent with a very broad range of people being affected. It might be 5%, it might be 50%. We don't know where in the spectrum that lies yet. And the only way of finding that out is to do these antibody tests, is to have serological screening of the general population. Um, And then with these antibody tests, we'll know who has has evidence of being exposed to the virus. So who has antibodies to the virus? And that's really going to be the only way of addressing that question.
1: What are we to make of the differences we're seeing from different models? Is this due to different data, different inputs or different assumptions being made or different ways that the models are dealing with spatial difference? So there are a range of different models being used in the, in the UK. I mean, in terms
3: of the local differences and, and spatial elements, I mean, the, the imperial model led by Neil Ferguson, who you've seen a lot on the news, I mean, does take into account this heterogeneity by region. And recognizes you know london is a different situation from elsewhere so, so and there are other models including those coming out of bristol and exeter that, that are very spatially explicit obviously it's important to take into account local differences and they are doing that um in terms of the the us uk predictions i mean come back to the point that the models are as good as the data that, that goes in but also recognising that there are many different modelling approaches that can be used and applied and lots of different assumptions can go into these models. But, I mean, the, sh- the short answer i give now is, is there are a range of models and, and that can be helpful because there is a lot of uncertainty. So where you, rather than putting all your trust into one model or one set of models, quite good to recognise the uncertainty and, and take a broader, a broader range, but you still need to have some filter of which assumptions and which approaches you would trust.
1: What's your perspective on how we should be thinking about the exit strategy?
3: I think the short answer is no one knows what, look, what the exit strategy is yet. Um, clearly, we're not going to have a vaccine for a while. Uh, hopefully, I mean, there's massive efforts going into developing vaccines, but that's not quick. That's, that's maybe a long tar- long-term aim, but, but not, not short-term. Some of the modelling groups have looked at this sort of gradual release, and then if cases start to pick up again and you uh, lock, down, lock down again, and as more tools become available so either the broader virus testing or the antibody testing the number of potential strategies increases i know that this has been looked at a lot this royal society call for more modelers to come together to contribute and actually from different perspectives so not just people with infectious disease experience but people who have quantitative experience with cross other fields and that uh, may broaden the thinking here, but, but really they're looking at doing that work between now and, and July, specifically looking at potential lockdowns just So there's going to be a lot of effort going into quantifying that, but at the moment I, I don't really know what it's, going to, what it's going to look like.
1: How are learn middle-income countries going to handle this pandemic, especially where there are areas dealing with already ongoing humanitarian crises? What priority should should um, be placed on this sort of testing of healthcare workers in in low income countries or countries that are very stretched? Steve, do you want to respond? But then Caroline, you might also comment as well. But Stephen, yeah, I mean
2: Caroline's probably a better person than me to suggest what this would be. So clearly, more frequent sampling is better than less frequent sampling. Um, we know we know pretty much what the kind of you know there's this kind of magic 14 day number of isolation and also the 14. 14 day delay after the the measures put in place to limit uh, uh, social um, social interactions so realistically every 14 days would be uh, probably the a good case scenario with seven days being probably... Uh, optimum on the basis of just making sure that actually every week people are coming in knowing that actually then that they've not been infected the week before. Anything other than that is is also fine but then, then, then we're in the position that the government's been in here which is only screening symptomatic or severely symptomatic cases. So for screening asymptomatics then I think probably the optimum is going to be seven days if not 14.
3: Thanks I mean I think this it's a critical question about how uh, low- and middle income countries are going are to handle this virus. Um, there are increasing number of cases across sub-Saharan Africa, where I'm more familiar. But you've got one lab and one PCR machine and eight million people. I mean, that, that's not that's not very much. So there are other ideas going around about how to better use other methods. So you still got still got the capacity for, for isolation and contact tracing. We have to identify people who are who have the disease in the first place. So there are there are tools that are being developed to really dive into the symptoms and can we get a specific indicator just from describing the symptoms compared with the range of other infectious diseases that might be prevalent so that there's some work that's going on that needs further work and research but but that's the sort of approach you're going to have to take I think you're not you're not going to be able to ramp up the testing to the degree that some countries have so it's, it's going to be think about different approaches what tools can you use looking for symptoms, um, contact tracing of infected people. I mean, in, in, this, in the refugee camps, I mean, obviously it's going to be very difficult to have this social distancing measures. I know people are thinking about it a lot. I don't think there are, there are easy answers, but clearly there is, as, as the virus moves across the world and into these different, different settings, we'll need different solutions because there, there cannot be a one-size-fits-all one size, one size fits all, and, and a lot more thought needs to go into, go into that.
1: Um, well I think we 're coming coming towards the end of this time does anybody want to have a sort of final comment they would like to make
3: no I, mean, I think just just I appreciate that there's the a lot of modeling coming out um, and it's difficult to interpret or can be difficult to interpret um, and then the situation is changing all the time that there are there are substantial efforts going on um and I think it it will become clearer, but one of the one of the key points about that modeling is that the uncertainty should be should be recognized. The answer to some question is well we don 't know we don 't know yet
1: Steve in a way this is just i think you 've implied this very much, but just to give you the opportunity to to comment on the, I mean, you seem to be suggesting that the idea that, that the UK should either go down a strongly centralised approach to testing or a sort of Dunkirk spirit with, with you know, flotilla of small boats. You're, you know, what you're saying seems to be that actually you need both because you need um, both the agility to be responsive to your local area, but you do need a nationally kind of validated system.
2: There's logistical problems with doing things and centralizing things. Uh, we, uh, which we all know about. Doing anything at scale in a short time frame is, is difficult. So there's issues around then, and how quickly can we can report information? But actually, there are, you know, there's this central uh, facility being set up in Milton Keynes. That Cambridge University have offered to do something similar here. The how we go from zero to then screening hundreds of thousands of people in a very short time frame is not a simple task. It's going to take a lot of time and effort to get those things working. And I don't know how successful they'll be in that interim period. Having small groups doing something similar here can add some capacity but also it means that if these places do get going then again we can act quicker and if there are urgent cases or, or urgent people that need to be screened in a relatively short time frame then we can do it there and then and I think there's we've got to have a combination of both.
1: The you know the uncertainties we're dealing with are really huge and the logistical challenges of, of going from kind of zero to, to responding to a new disease um, are, are just really significant. Taking the time that you have done to help talk through what are the back what's the background what's the your experience what's the state of the knowledge to just help inform us as a sort of the general kind of the general policy community get a get a better understanding of, of what what what's going on I think is is hugely valuable it's going to be extremely valuable in the coming months so we, I on, on behalf of saw a big thanks to Stephen and Caroline Thank you very much.
0: CSAP Science and Policy podcast is a production of the Center for Science and Policy at the University of Cambridge. This series, Science, Policy, and Pandemics, has been produced in partnership with Cambridge Infectious Diseases and the Cambridge Immunology Network. This episode was hosted by Dr. Rob Doubleday and produced by Kate McNeil. Our guests this week were Dr. Caroline Trotter and Dr. Stephen Baker. You can learn more about CSAP's work by visiting us on Twitter at Paul or by visiting our website at www.csap.cam.ac.uk. If you have feedback about this episode or questions you'd like us to address in a future week, please email inquiries at Thanks for listening.